Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Should children go back to school after what is still the half-term break next week? Is testing and tracing in place? And what about the UK's borders? Can you plan a summer holiday and are you going to have to be quarantined for 14 days when you come back? No surprise if you're not completely clear, it is still in flux. We're going to explore what the government's announcements and often re-announcements of these points tell us about the way it's making decisions. And we're going to touch on as well reports of rows at the heart of government about these kind of crucial decisions. We're also going to take a closer look at the role of Public Health England. It's come in for loud criticism this week. What about the government's sudden decision, another of them, about Parliament? It's determined to bring an end to the experiment of a virtual palace of Westminster. But can, can MPs safely return? Will they? We've got a new report out this week analysing that extraordinary phenomenon known as the Brexit Parliament. One of its authors joins us in the studio and we're going to look at what long-term reforms might be needed. We'll also take a look at what's going on in the US. Dan Baltz, the chief correspondent of the Washington Post, joins us to discuss why he thinks America's halting response to the outbreak is not just about President Trump's improvised statements on medicine, but has its roots in a hollowing out of US government structures that really goes back decades. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by my Institute for Government colleagues, Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service work. Alex, hi. Hi, Bromain. And Joe Marshall, IFG senior researcher and joint author of our new Parliamentary Monitor report. Hi, Joe. Hi, Bronwyn. Great. Well, Joe, just give us a quick taste to start off. Do you think Parliament is indeed going to return to Westminster after the recess? Yes, uh, the plan is for Parliament to return after the recess. Yesterday, the government decided not to renew the virtual hybrid proceedings. Basically, these are forms that have allowed some parliamentary business to take place remotely. Um, but there are going to be a lot of uh, concerns and quite a lot of debate about whether or not Parliament should be coming back, because it's going to be coming back to physical work in Westminster while it's still having to social distance, which means it won't be business as normal for Parliament. And having to travel on public transport very often, all, all these kind of things. There's a, quite a row going. We'll come back to that in a moment. But this, this takes us really to the questions about how the heart of government is working at the moment and how decisions are being made. And I want to look at two in particular. Uh, the one about school opening, uh, supposedly after uh, after the half-term break, so at the beginning of June, and about uh, the UK's borders, whether or not you can cross them without being quarantined, what you're going to do about your summer holidays. We've had what seemed like very firm decisions, followed by a lot of uncertainty, and then sometimes um, qualifications of those decisions. You can come back from France or Ireland, and then the French bit of that uh, revised, and then the uh, suggestion of air corridors perhaps opening up. Alex, what does this tell us about the way government is making decisions at the moment? Well, I think... Um... Uh, it, it tells us one uh, thing to start with, which is that people are exhausted. Um, uh, we'll, we'll get into the sort of structural points and, uh, and, and the detail of those announcements in a minute. But I, I think it's worth um, uh, taking a moment just to reflect on the fact that this has been a sort of an, an all-consuming huge crisis um, for uh, uh, more than two months now. And the decision makers and those advising them in the centre of government and across the whole of civil service, the ministerial team, will be completely exhausted. So uh, there's there's something there about um, about very tired people not always making the best uh, decisions. And I think you do get um, you do get the flavour of that. I mean, for all the pictures we've had of the Prime Minister out jogging, now the sense that they, they have been at this, it's incredibly hard to have the hours in the day to take in all the information you need to make these decisions. 
Yeah, completely. And um, uh, and, and you have to, you know, on, on a human level, you obviously absolutely uh, f- feel for that. But um, equally, government doesn't stop. Government needs to be resilient enough to to, to carry on through these uh, through these things. But I I do think just to you know I, I don't want to overplay it, but just an element of some of the kind of raggedness around this that that the uh, that the uh, commentariat is is picking up on is 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 down to that. Um, I mean, more beyond that, I think to to be fair to the government there uh, and the prime minister said in his. Uh, uh, sort of famous most recent Sunday night statement that um, they were always going to iterate these decisions, come back to them, reflect on uh, uh, whether they were um, whether they were the, the right things to uh, to announce, and that would be based on <clears throat> the science and the. Uh, the, re- the rate of infection. So there is a, there's a bit of a sense that it's, you know, it's, it's reasonable to come back to, come back to these things. All that said, um, it does still feel like there's quite a large element of sort of government as normal rather than really clear, uh, authoritative, uh, communications and government in a, in a crisis. The, the sort of the, the briefing out of some, uh, changes and then the kind of retracting the, uh, the, the, um, uh, nature of those, uh, kind of communications, um, just suggests to me that there's, um, that there's a bit of a, uh, a, a, a feel to kind of testing these decisions, and then rolling back. And when those are, um, those are uh, fundamental decisions that will affect what millions and millions of people actually have to do in a few days' time. It's quite difficult to uh, uh, it's quite difficult for people to understand what's going on there. Well, you've described this as government as normal. And I think quite a few people would find that rather worrying. If we take the schools decision, which is is going to take up a lot of uh, space and noise over the next ten days, um, we had you know. D- d- Encouragement by the government for schools to go back early in June, uh, then immediate uh, repulse from the teaching unions saying that you haven't talked to us and we don't think it's safe for teachers or uh, children. And then uh, a, a, a kind of messier process where local uh, local uh, government authorities and, uh, and, uh, and, and schools themselves have been trying to test the waters about what, what parents want. And the picture is that we don't really know where the schools are going back, do we? Mm-hmm. And it shows the challenges. I mean, just to be clear on that, you know, I, I don't for a moment think it is government as normal and government has completely sort of revolutionised itself to to deal with this. But the point I was making is that the sort of the, the nature of the decisions in the policymaking uh, sometimes feels a bit, uh, you know, there's, there's as much about balancing off different factions in the cabinet or uh, or, or testing things out as, as there is about the really kind of clear and authoritative ad, ad, advice. On, on, on the, uh, the, the challenges of delivering these sorts of uh, decisions, you're, you're right. One of the... <clears throat> One of the jobs of government is to convene large numbers of disparate people around um, particular uh, ob- objectives and particular uh, decisions. And it does uh, uh, feel like um, uh, around the uh, school's decision in particular, uh, the government's lost control a bit of the uh, story around that and, then con- and lost control of the decisions. And the, and, the, and the variety of factors that are being brought brought, brought into this. But I, let me just say, I, I mean, I, I, and there's been a huge amount of criticism of this decision, I must say, I, I, I feel there's one uh, point very much in the government's um, on the government's side on this, if you if you like, which is that they were not saying that we're on top of all of this, and indeed not resoundingly saying we've got all the testing and tracing and everything uh, in hand. But they were saying, look, we we absolutely take the point on which everyone is agreed that a lot of children are suffering and particularly uh, children from the most disadvantaged homes and are really losing important and perhaps irrevocable amounts of education. And even though we haven't completely rounded off all the all the kind of health and scientific questions we we really don't know an awful lot of things about whether how infected children get and how much they pass it on 
but we really think this is so important that we're, we're going to try and mm-hmm. um, go ahead with that. And, and that does sound as if there's been a lot of really quite anguished debate, but really driven by this desire to get get children back, which I which I respect on yeah. that. And I, I could, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And it's we've uh, we've we've made the point uh, many times now in, uh, in in the IFG about the ease of going into the lockdown and the difficulty of uh, coming out of it. But this is a it's about balance of risk, and we've got um, the, the sort of the, the commentary around this has got quite used to uh, uh, to um, uh, kind of directive decisions, and we're we're not now in a phase of directive decisions. And there is a there is a there's a genuine point there about um, the government cannot uh, ever possibly uh, eliminate risk. It can't authoritatively definitively say to teachers there is no risk to you to going into school but then the government hasn't been able to say that to bus drivers or to uh, uh, delivery uh, um, uh, uh, people working in the delivery chain or to people working in supermarkets there is you know, there, there is no uh, we have to move away from a world where we're, we're just talking about uh, direct risk but for all this complexity which you've been talking about which i absolutely recognize that the, the Announcements on the borders and on foreign travel in particular seem to be a better example of really messy decision making because you did have a statement of um, uh, uh, suddenly the UK is going to begin uh, essentially closing the borders after months of keeping them open while the world has shut its own borders uh, and and put in a a 14-day quarantine. And then exceptions started coming through, obviously, lorry drivers. And then there was it, it floated around for a bit that maybe France would be an exception. Then it wouldn't be as everyone started looking for routes to other to the whole world through France. But Ireland will be because of the land border and so on. And then and then you've got more, um, more kind of uh, exemptions and ambiguities coming in. Couldn't the government clean up this messaging a bit, even given what you're saying about, it, look, it's harder to get out of this? Well, do, do you know I uh, I have a little bit more sympathy than uh, than that for the, for the government in, in in that sense because um, there is a there is a clear rationale for only shutting the borders once you've got the incidents uh, down to a low level and uh, I I would take the point from the government that uh, that that while the uh, disease is um, sort of freely circulating in the UK there's not a lot of point shutting the borders whether they should have been shut much much earlier um, back in February March is a, is a different question. Um, there's, there's uh, plenty of complexity in the uh, in in the decision about um, uh, shutting the borders and what exemptions you might you might uh, bring through. Where I do think there is a and, and I think it's a good example of my kind of government briefing and uh, and and, and uh, uh, trying to manage things as normal is this sort of air bridge uh, idea that was. Uh, brief to the papers. It was then kind of there was a sense that it was a, co- a you know, messy compromise between those in the cabinet who didn't want to open the borders and those who did isn't as uh, isn't as effective. You wrote us a great piece on how Michael Gove uh, is quietly reshaping the cabinet office, and the government did have at the top of its agenda uh, a lot of things about civil service reform. Do you think it's going to have any time for that, or in fact be energised by all this to think that we really do need to reform the civil service? I think it will. I think it will change some of what they wanted to do, but actually the fundamentals of uh, civil servants having the right skills, being accountable, being in the right place, uh, clear structures, reducing turnover, getting the right experts in, those themes that we were all talking about um, uh, around the turn of the year uh, and, and, and beyond are, are all there and all, all present in this uh, in this crisis. I, I, I don't think this is a government that will want to let a good crisis go to waste. And I do think um, uh, I do I do think that they will move pretty rapidly once we're uh, out of the kind of real thickets of the of, of the pandemic to to make some changes. It was very striking. Lots of people remarked 
remarked on that paragraph towards the end of the uh, exit strategy paper that was published about um, rapid re-engineering of of, of government. Um, w- one of the things that it was it was interesting in some of the briefing, and you you, you may be coming onto this, Bronwyn, uh, that uh, there was an article in the in the Spectator that suggested that um, Michael Gove was only in charge of half of the cabinet office because the other uh, half worked to um, uh, worked to uh, Mark Sedwell as the cabinet secretary. I, I, I was struck by that because that's not that's not really true. I mean, the whole of the cabinet office works to the prime minister. Uh, there is a tension between what the minister for the cabinet office uh, gets in, in, involved with. So um, uh, the, uh, the there's a uh, the, there's a sort of oddity in, in in some of the briefing that's coming out around how the cabinet office might be reformed because um, if if the government thinks that half of the cabinet office isn't under their control then they're uh, then they're mistaken and they should they should take advantage of it. This week, we published our latest edition of Parliamentary Monitor, our epic account of the last epic parliament. That parliament, the Brexit parliament, went on and on and on with its dramas almost week by week. Joe, you spent many long nights trawling through the data. Give me the top line. Well, the Brexit parliament really was quite exceptional. And it was exceptional really for two reasons. Uh, Normally in Westminster, there are two factors that really ease parliamentary procedures. And Parliament has sort of grown up over time in expectation that these factors will be present. And that's a majority government and strong party loyalty. And in the last Parliament, both of those factors slipped away. After the 2017 general election, there wasn't the majority and that majority got um, that minority government lost MPs um, to defections and people losing the party whips. And Brexit was a divisive issue that obviously cut across party lines. And that really put pressure on how Parliament operates. And you know, in normal times, those two factors sort of paper over some of the cracks in parliamentary procedure and how Parliament works. And with those factors gone, we really started to see a lot of problems exposed. And what are, what are those kind of problems? And, and just to be clear, we, just what exactly are the dates of the Brexit Parliament so people know what we're, we're talking about? Yes, so the Brexit Parliament was a parliament that ran from the 2017 general election until Parliament was dissolved prior to the general election last year. And as part of that Parliament, we had the really long session, which was dominated by Brexit debate and Theresa May's deals. And then we had the very short session at the end after Boris Johnson eventually managed to prorogue Parliament after his first attempt was uh, scuttled by the Supreme Court. And so going back to your point about the the, the cracks or the kind of um, unspoken, unwritten, unresolved points in the, in, in Britain's constitution, what, what what was it that it revealed? There are various things it revealed. One of the biggest ones was sort of the weaknesses of parliamentary scrutiny and the sort of government's attitude towards scrutiny. And so one thing that we saw the May and Johnson governments do is really act as if they had a majority and they both attempted to evade scrutiny at certain times. The May government didn't hold opposition day debates when the opposition gets to set the agenda for a key five-month period during the Brexit debate. You had Boris Johnson try to unlawfully broke Parliament um, before the October Brexit deadline, which stymied debate in the run-up to that event. And there's lots of concern as well about the legislation they passed. They passed huge amounts of legislation to deal with Brexit. And I'll have to expose that Parliament's processes for looking at legislation, especially when there is such a scale of legislation, are really quite limited and quite weak. 
um, and they exposed some problems in that legislation as well. So that was one key area. And we've seen that that is coming to a head again in the current parliament. It's a problem which has persisted. So there are concerns about the virtual parliament coming to an end and what that means for legislation. And there were concerns about the government pushing through its key Brexit bill back in January to the same time frame that the last parliament had rejected as providing insufficient time for scrutiny. So scrutiny is definitely one area. Um, but we've also seen procedures come under uh, strain. So you know, as we said, procedures designed for majority government, designed for party loyalty, we saw lots of um, lots of occasions where those procedures were strained, where they were subject to novel interpretations, where ancient procedures like the humble address were revived, where we saw MPs taking control of the order paper, the agenda of parliament from the government. And the big problem there is, well, lots of precedents set in the last parliament, particularly aided by an amenable speaker and John Burko. I wonder when his neighbour's going to come up. Yes. Well, I want, I want to come on to where we, where we are now. And obviously we have the, the, the uh, very brief, perhaps, uh, virtual parliament and the leader of the Commons, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, now saying everyone back to work and be seen to get back to work and an enormous row then erupting uh, MPs saying, look, um, telling us to be seen to be back at work. On the other hand, how are we going to be socially distant? And in fact, how are we going to get to Parliament uh, if we don't uh, have a constituency in, in London and we're going to be using public transport and all this this kind of thing? And what about MPs who are shielding or shielding others and so on? So big row. Um, what you, you were touching on the point about scrutiny. What have we learned about the virtual parliament and, and its ability to scrutinise? And do you think this new parliament coming back with apparently only 50 MPs at a time in the chamber, is that going to be able to scrutinise things? Well, you're right that it is a really controversial area. And I think um, one of our colleagues, Alice Lilly, put it really well when she sort of said the hybrid virtual parliament that's been put in place over the past couple of months is imperfect but inclusive. So what we've seen is a mix of activities happening in the chamber with social distancing, plus the ability of up to 120 MPs to join remotely and take part in uh, events. We've seen a new virtual or remote voting system implemented, which was used um, by the government recently on the trade bill and other pieces of legislation. Um, So we've seen Parliament adapt very rapidly. What the government is saying now is those measures are imperfect. They don't allow us to get our legislation through like we would like. They don't allow sufficient scrutiny because they don't allow for the dynamism and the sort of um, back and forth of parliamentary debate that we normally see. They don't allow people to um, intervene in debate um, in the ways we normally have. And it's harder as well for MPs to get to keep in touch with each other, for parliamentary whips to keep tabs on their MPs. Well, that's a crucial point, isn't it? I mean, I've had quite a few MPs contact me um, across the political spectrum, but just really concerned about this move to get back to work and say, look, it's self-serving by the government. A lot of us don't feel comfortable coming back. And really, it's to help the whips get a better control. And we don't think we're going to get much chance to um, to speak. Yes, I think that is the, the crux of the issue, is that on the other side of the argument, people saying that this is premature, basically that, you know, whilst the virtual proceedings are going to be brought to an end in the Commons. It's not going to be a return to business as usual. So we're not returning to a situation where all MPs can contribute easily, where everyone can be in the chamber and on the estate at the same time. 
the, speaker, the, lead, the Speaker of the House of Commons has made it particularly clear that social distancing will continue. So that does limit the numbers in the chamber to 50. Um, and that raises big questions. There are big questions about do you disenfranchise some MPs, those in remote constituencies who, like you say, find it harder to travel, those who have to shield for their own health or the health of their family members, who might have to make a choice between taking part in parliamentary proceedings or trying to protect their health. And then we've got questions about you know, that limited capacity in Parliament. Who gets to control who can take part? So uh, you, is that a lot of power to the whips and the party machines to decide who takes part? Um, so there are big questions here about closing down that extra capacity that was built in by these virtual hybrid proceedings that have been put in place um, without being open to or without being able to open the physical um, activity in Parliament further right, well, I certainly think if if sorry uh, I, I certainly think if in doubt you should uh, uh, assume that the government will do things that maximize its uh, its its own control I was I was, uh, I was not in doubt slightly at that point. point which is that, <laughs> yeah uh, I was, I was going to make another slightly flippant point, which was that actually in most of my time, probably 80%, 90% of my time in the officials box uh, when I was a civil servant, there were probably fewer than 50 MPs in the chamber anyway. So there's there's, there's quite a lot of parliament, parliamentary time and those kind of day-to-day uh, -day debates uh, that, that will be perhaps less affected, but it, obviously the big set piece. Uh, moments and uh, and the nature of voting and, and all the other things that, that Joe yeah, was talking about will be, will be dramatically changed. It's going to be really important going forward because what these last few weeks have shown, they have been a really good proof of concept for those who want to reform of how Parliament works and haven't made progress for years and years, to be able to point to things and say, even in the most extreme circumstances, Parliament can work differently. It can vote remotely. We can hear from different voices around the country in a way that gets us out of the Westminster bubble. And yes, they were imperfect, but maybe in better circumstances with more time, those uh, reforms could lead to changes in how Parliament works. Let's turn finally to Public Health England, an organisation that many people might not have heard of before this crisis, but it was the target this week of searing criticism in a Times editorial and also in The Economist. Boris Johnson is said to have told backbench Tory MPs last week that he was going to review a number of institutions once the pandemic was over, and it looks as if Public Health England might be in the line of fire. Alex, can you tell us a bit about it, just to inform people who may not who will have seen its name in the, in the papers all the times at the moment, but not, perhaps not know what it does? So it's a it's an uh, executive agency uh, of the Department of Health and Social Care, which uh, is important because it it means that um, unlike some other sort of more arm's length bodies, ministers can tell it uh, and, and and do tell it uh, what to do. There may be all sorts of criticisms to make of public health uh, England, but it's it's not a means to for ministers to avoid accountability for uh, for for uh, its its effectiveness or, or or the decisions and the things that it's delivering. Um, it's it's broad. I'm simplifying hugely, but it's broadly got kind of two remits in the area of public health. One is what it's doing now, which is responding to uh, emergencies, uh, the uh, tracing down and, uh, uh, and, and, and managing disease uh, outbreaks. Um, most of the time that's been, you know, tuberculosis or um, other, um, uh, you know, other, other kind of diseases as they flare up in different parts of 
of of the country. Um, its other remit is uh, around sort of promoting uh, good health for the nation. So your five a day fruit, tackling obesity, uh, anti smoking uh, activity, and uh, and promoting healthy communities. So broadly, it's got that kind of sort of responsive arm and responding to emergencies and the uh, and, and the the promoting a, a healthy England. Um, it was created um, out of the Lansley reforms, bringing together um, uh, lots and lots. I think about seventy different different agencies that came together under the new banner of Public Health England. So it's a relatively recent um, body. The main activity that we're focused on at the moment was the responsibility of the Health Protection Agency, which which was its its predecessor. Is there a problem of confused accountability here? Duncan Selby, who's its uh, chief executive, has said it isn't responsible for testing. So he said it wasn't responsible for the testing strategy. Yes. Uh, and I, so I think he's you know, he's right on that because that's the de- Department of Health and Social Care's responsibility but um, uh, uh, and, the, and the contact tracing strategy, sorry, I should say. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but it is responsible for the delivery of that. I mean, my main point on that is, you know, yes, th- th- there is a framework of accountability there. But when you've got the chief executive of an organisation, you know, implicitly or explicitly distancing himself from decisions that ministers are making and then the scientists doing doing. The same there's that that is not a clear and harmonious decision making uh, group so uh, there's a uh, I say actually I don't think there is a problem of accountability because it's clear that ministers are responsible for uh, for PHE but I do think there is a uh, there's there's you know in, in these it goes back to my perhaps people being exhausted point but in these very very difficult times the uh, the, the structures and the leadership at the top there do feel like they're fraying where do the government SARS fit in? We've now got three. Um, Paul Dayton on personal protective equipment, Dido Harding on testing, and Kate Bingham, who's married to Jesse Norman, the Conservative MP, who's financial secretary to the Treasury, now on vaccines. Who do they report to and how do they fit in with all this? So I think this is really interesting. Uh, they are clearly, um, so th- their role is to bring together um, the whole of the system around those three key uh, areas. And the government's clearly finding this a useful uh, approach. Um, uh, it's their existence to me is a symptom of some of the fractured responsibilities around the healthcare system in particular when you think about NHS and procurement and, and protective equipment um, uh, or or you know the same sort of issues around vaccine and testing um, I, I suspect the government at the centre is frustrated that there are too many people who need to come to too many meetings who are all slightly talking or working uh, you know at, at cross purposes and so you know have looked to these big figures to bring clarity and clarity of accountability and to, to, to bring everything together. It's quite, I mean, maybe it's only interesting to, to geeks like me, but I hope there are enough people listening that the, that Kate Bingham and Dido Harding explicitly were appointed as working to the Prime Minister, and that was part of the announcement, whereas uh, Paul Day- Dayton was appointed as sort of working alongside the uh, Secretary of State for Health. So there's sort of, I, I think the model is evolving, but it, it, it definitely, it says quite a lot about the fractured nature of the system and also about Number 10 and the Centre's desire to, you know, sort of stamp their authority and have clear accountabilities that these three figures exist. If we ever feel our government is struggling to respond to the coronavirus outbreak, it only takes a brief look across the Atlantic to get the feeling that things could be worse. President Trump makes the headlines with his suggestions, for example, injecting disinfectant, or his revelation that he's now taking anti-malarial drugs as a way, scientifically unproven, to keep the virus at bay. But it's the patchy response and the rising death toll as well that are getting the headlines. And those, many argue, are not 
uh, his fault at all. I spoke to Dan Boltz, chief correspondent at the Washington Post, to find out more. He wrote a terrific article this week, and the headline was The Crisis Exposes How America Has Hollowed Out Its Government, which caught my attention because it took us straight into, if you like, Institute for Government territory. And I I want to begin by reading out your first sentence, which really, to me, grabbed the whole of your argument in one. And you said, which I'm sure you remember, that the government's halting response to the coronavirus pandemic represents the culmination of chronic structural weaknesses, years of underinvestment and political rhetoric that has undermined the public trust, conditions compounded by President Trump's open hostility to a federal bureaucracy that has been called upon to manage the crisis. I wonder if you could just take us into this and the, the point about this having been going on for years, as you see it. Well, I mean, you can trace this back decades. One of the people I interviewed for this said you could go back all the way to Barry Goldwater's 64 campaign in which he was obviously arguing for a much different approach to government than Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. But the real turn, I think, took place in 1980 with the arrival of Ronald Reagan uh, and his presidency. Reagan's first inaugural was memorable in, in part for one line in which he said, government is not the solution government is the problem. And, and that stuck, that, didn't it? People have quoted that down the decades now. That that has been, you know, an iconic statement, particularly for, for advocates of limited government. And there has been an argument both about government, big or small, that we have watched over many, many years. But there's also a question about whether government is a, is is or can be a force for good or is, is in fact an impediment. And I think that the Reagan rhetoric, contrary to some of the Reagan policies, but the Reagan rhetoric turned that debate in a direction in which it became much more common for politicians, certainly conservative politicians, but sometimes moderate or liberal politicians, to run against the federal government, to denigrate the federal government as incompetent. And I think that that sowed the ground for what we have seen since. And so even though there have been waves of this, that it has gone back and forth between conservative rhetoric and moderate or, or liberal rhetoric, as you said, you, you feel this, this, there's been a, a trend of this. And what, what do you mean by hollowing out? What actually does that look like? Well, the hollowing out is really on the domestic side of government. Over the years, and, and again, Reagan was part of starting this, Reagan very much stressed an expansion of defense spending, significant tax cuts, and therefore a squeeze on the resources left for the rest of the government. And, uh, you know, as you say, this has ebbed and flowed over the years as, as conditions have warranted. And as, you know, as we went from the post the Cold War to the post-Cold War, the ups and downs of defense spending. But there has been a kind of a constant squeeze, um, what we describe here as domestic discretionary spending, which is to say spending other than for entitlement programs like Social Security or, or our, our Medicare health care program for the elderly. So this is stuff that that Congress has to approve regularly. Yes. And so those elements of spending have been pushed down. And the other thing that we saw beginning really in the 2010s was this battle between Congress and then the Obama administration over you know, the annual spending in government. And we would get to the brink of a shutdown and occasionally we would have a brief government shutdown. But in essence, what Congress began to do was to pass these kind of omnibus spending bills, which kept things at a prior level as opposed to doing serious budgeting, uh, a serious examination of what one agency needed versus another agency. And this too squeezed the, the kind of the basic infrastructure 
of federal government. I can't tell you precisely the the numbers of how much it has gone down, but in in anything like that, what happens is the immediate issues get attended to, the underlying problems get ignored. And then you put President Trump on top. And what's been the effect of that? Well, I mean, two things, uh, two broad things. One is overall, as I wrote, his hostility to the executive branch, to the permanent government, to what he calls the deep state. And this is a notion that the permanent government is in one way or another aligned against him, and therefore he is going to fight it at every turn. You know, when he came in, one of the first things that that his new budget proposed was a, a dramatic cut in State Department spending. Now, Congress did not go along with that, but it, it conveyed an attitude on his part that the executive branch of government uh, was not something that was going to be helpful to him, and he was going to do what he could to frustrate it. The second thing, Ronwin, that happened is that his transition went off the rails almost immediately. He he fired the person who had been in charge of his transition operation. Chris Christie was the person, and and he, he got rid of him. And they began to, to put a government together, again, with, with very little understanding or very little knowledge of who were the right people to put in jobs. One difference that we have compared to your government is that we have a tremendous number, several thousand political appointees who are at the top of all of the agencies. And under President Trump, many of those went vacant for many, many months, more so than was typical of a president. And there was tremendous turnover, much more turnover in those jobs. Those are the, the leaders who are responsible for making agencies function. Now, an agency can function pretty well day to day, but when you get to a crisis situation, when you get to you know, a pandemic, obviously, uh, or uh, some external shock, they need real leadership. And that's been missing in this administration as well. I mean, I'm reaching now for British understatement, but you've had a kind of uh, President, uh, former President Obama has come out and uh, uh, talked about the chaos of, of bits of the administration's planning and strategy, particularly, say, over testing. Uh, and then you have the uh, theatre of the president uh, making up his own medicine and medical treatment on top of that. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, the, the response by President Trump has been why widely criticized and for some very good reason. One is that, you know, that that his administration was ill-prepared for this and then did not respond in a robust way. There, there, we have a national stockpile of all kinds of things, among among them medical equipment, PPEs, the ventilators, those kinds of things. But those stockpiles are not meant to take you through the entirety of a crisis like this. They are meant to kind of get you through the beginning stages. But this administration did not respond uh, quickly or robustly enough. We have something called the Defense Production Act, which basically allows the government to command private businesses, private manufacturing firms to do certain things, to produce ventilators. Uh, The president was hesitant to do that. Beyond that, the president has delivered messages consistently to people that are at odds with what the scientists have been saying. So he, on the one hand, will claim he is deferring to the scientists, but he will then say something of his own volition that is in contradiction to that. Um, And so he has talked about the use of certain medicines. Um, Hydroxychloroquine, for example, uh, is one that he's talked about recently. This is a, a medication that has not been approved in any way for treatment of COVID-19. Nonetheless, he has insisted that it is entirely safe. There is some evidence that it is not safe. He has done those kinds of things. And the second thing mm. he has and done... That, and that's even before the, the, the disinfectant recommendation, a bit of well, soft power well, the, US, it, the, US, it, it, the US probably doesn't want. <laughs> 
It preceded the, the, the suggestion that we could use disinfectants so we could ingest disinfectants, which, you know, a number of state health offices, when, when he did that, had a tremendous number of inquiries about whether they could use this. Um, and so governors had to put out statements uh, saying, no, 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 do not use disin do not drink disinfectant. Uh, it will kill you. Um, and so he's done those kinds of things. But the other thing he's done is he has deferred to governors on certain kinds of things and basically said to the governors, you're on your own. For example, to find, you know, certain medical equipment. So you had this, you know, 50 states competing against one another. And probably, I mean, I think there's growing evidence that they, they paid exorbitant prices because they were bidding up the value of the equipment that they were looking for, rather than the government organizing that kind of response. That's fascinating, because one of the things that's um, on test, if you like, and it's is not just any particular government, but whole systems of government. You know, every country is looking around and saying, well, did they do better? You know, they were authoritarian, whatever. One of the interests of the United States example, to the rest of the world, is the very federal nature of it, that the governors do indeed have quite a lot of freedom. Is it your sense that this is a strength. You might say it's a strength because, look, they can make their own plans for coming out of lockdown, or it's a weakness, just as you've described, that they're actually competing against each other. Well, it's both a strength and a weakness. I mean, under our system, the governors do have tremendous power. They have what we call police power, which actually does not have anything to do with law and order. And it's it, it frankly derives from British practice some centuries ago, which is to say that they are responsible for the health and well-being of the people of their states. And this was this was enshrined in, you know, from the founding fathers forward, that states would have these powers that when, when our government was established, it was to have a limited central government um, and a more robust series of state governments. We've seen that play out in, in some very effective ways. Some, some governors have been very aggressive, both Democrats and Republicans, in the way they responded to this far faster than the federal government was recommending. And, and we've seen that in, you know, states that were very, very hard hit, like New York and uh, California initially. Um, we've seen it in states that, that have been a little less hard hit, um, run by Republican governors. So Ohio, for example, is one. But one of the things that we've seen in this is that there is a division of responsibility that goes along with this federal system. There are certain things that the states have responsibility for and certain things that the federal government has responsibility for. And where the breakdown has occurred is that the federal government has not stepped up to do the kinds of things that only it can do. Only the federal government can really produce the tests that are necessary and make them widely available. States really can't do that. Only the federal government can marshal the resources um, and the organization to push forward on a vaccine development. Only the federal government, uh, as I indicated earlier, can order companies to begin to manufacture the kinds of equipments that are desperately needed. Um, and what we found was that the governors, who are usually quite jealous of their, their powers, were asking the federal government to step up and take responsibility to do the kinds of things that only the federal government can do. What are people's feelings about the healthcare system? One of the figures that always um, amazes me is that the US spends more per head of public money on healthcare than, uh, than Britain does, and then spends the same again in, in, in private money. Uh, and so spends an awful lot on, on health care. Uh, obviously, Obama, when president, um, had uh, one sustained go at reforming the system and the insurance and so on. Is, is, is this crisis prompted any thoughts about the structure of American health care? It certainly has prompted a lot of discussion about it. Um, because we're in the middle of this, that discussion, you know, cannot kind of take 
full flowering, but there will be a, a post-pandemic, or at least when things calm down a bit, a further discussion of what the healthcare system ought to look like. I mean, one of the things that we've seen here is the, the tremendous inequities in, in the availability of healthcare, the uh, the cost of healthcare, and disadvantaged communities being at a huge disadvantage. I can't tell you where that debate is going to go, but it is a much more significant debate right now than it had been before that. Um, one of the things you, you mentioned, President Obama's efforts to reform the healthcare system and to create what was called the Affordable Care Act, or commonly known as Obamacare, that was highly unpopular when it happened um, and remained considerably unpopular through most of the, to the Obama administration. Since then, um, as Republicans have tried to wipe it out unsuccessfully, it has become more popular. I think the question is, there's, you know, on the left, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party has called for the creation of what he calls Medicare for all, which is essentially a government-run healthcare system, a single-payer system. I don't see at this point significant growth in support for that across the population, but I think that the, because of the role that medical professionals have played, there is understanding of the importance of having a healthcare system that is more accessible and more equitable. We'll see where that goes. You're a close observer for many, many years of, uh, of Britain and its prime ministers. How does the British experience look to you? Well, I mean, it looks a little bit like the United States experience. I mean, the, your, your prime minister was certainly negligent in the early stages of it, did not take it seriously. And as a result, you've had a worse go at this than a number of European countries have. Certainly, he seems to have had a change of heart as a result of his own experience with, with being infected with the virus and, and the role that the national health insurance played in saving his life, as he has described it. And he has become, as a result of that, more tentative in reopening than, than our president has been, certainly rhetorically. Now, the reopening in our, in our country, as you suggested, is up to individual governors to decide you know, the pace of reopening in their states. But the president has been a cheerleader for reopening at a time when Prime Minister Johnson has certainly not been. He, he, he has been far more cautious about um, the beginning of the reopening in Britain. And I think that's because uh, of the experience both that the country has gone through there and that he personally has experienced. I think that's right. And he does he does say that, that his personal experience is a dramatic few weeks, obviously, when he nearly died and then had a baby with his partner. Yeah, yeah that's not the whole of it, obviously. I mean, the, the, the seriousness, the undeniable seriousness of the pandemic within Britain, uh, I'm sure also changed minds in the in the government. So how do you... It, it would be yeah. hard not to, right? I mean, yes. given given what you all have gone through and given similarly what we've gone through. I mean, we, you know, I mean, our, our case level and our, our deaths are, you know, uh, horrific. And that has certainly affected people. But frankly, the economic impact is also wearing on people. And so there is a tension between the safety of the public at large and the economic well-being of people who have been, you know, dramatically hurt by something over which they had no control. I mean, we, you know, we essentially... And we're only just beginning to see the rise in, uh, steep rise in unemployment numbers. We've, you know, had a whole parade of big economists saying this is going to be really bad. But I think, I mean, yeah. it, it, just getting a sense of, of how bad it, it may be and getting worse. Let me ask you finally then, obviously this is an election year in America. How does this, both the economic and the number of, of deaths, if you like, the experience of this, how does that play into this election? Well, I mean, it becomes the central organizing f feature of our election, certainly. And, and 
and the dramatic shift in the economy has robbed President Trump of the single most important asset that he was able to bring into the campaign, which was that we had a very strong economy during his presidency and, and that change presidencies would be to risk that economy. That was going to be his argument. That's been removed. And there's no indication that um, we will have the kind of robust kind of V-shaped recession that that he is talking about. Um, so he's going to go into the fall campaign with a very weakened economy, uh, with lots of people still unemployed. His numbers, his his approval ratings have been tepid, to say the least. Normally in a situation like this, national leaders uh, have a, there's a rally around the effect and their numbers goes up. That has not been the case. He had a brief increase, but not a significant one. People's minds are made up about him for the most part. Uh, and this, this crisis is no different. There, there is going to be, you know, uh, an argument that is ongoing about how quickly to reopen and somebody's going to be proven more accurate or more correct than the other. And, and, and that will affect, I think, some voters at the margins on, on how this turns out. But it, at this point, given our electoral college, we anticipate that this will be a very competitive election between Trump and, and the former vice president, Joe Biden. But we have, we have a ways to go on this and some, some very difficult months ahead as we, you know, as we reopen the economy and then become concerned about a, a second wave of the virus hitting as we go into the fall. Alex, what lessons do you draw from the spectacle of what's going on in the United States? Uh, well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite early to uh, draw lessons um, beyond, the, beyond the obvious about kind of clarity of leadership uh, clarity of, of of advice and the fact that you know some of the issues we were talking about earlier, a united team at the top is is really important. I was I was quite struck when I read uh, Dan Bounce's uh, article about um, how little, uh, uh, from his perspective, the U.S. administration had had looked to its own structures and how little they'd thought about what we would call you know institutional reform or civil service reform. Um, so th- there's something there about actually sort of. The, the fact that we in the UK are able to uh, reflect on our own structures is is a strength, and I think the fact that the US hasn't done that um, is, uh, is 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 one sort of one part of the cause of the governance challenges that they're facing. No, he, is, he is also describing a kind of sweep of history where uh, a series of governments have have become sceptical of um, federal administration, if you like. He's also describing a very federalised structure where the state and state governors are doing things uh, and have the power to do things very differently. Joe, any thoughts from you? Yes, I think just picking up on that point about the federal structure, I think it is really important to think about how different governments are effectively facing different challenges because of the way their governance is set up. So we're already starting to see, you know, tempers starting to fray between the, the different nations in the UK. But the UK government is generally in a position where it can still do a lot of things and can still act and try and bring unity. It's quite a different challenge when so much is at a state level and the federal government is having to work with so many different organisations that are very far away from the centre. So I think different governments facing different challenges, both on what the virus is doing, but also on what structures of government they have to respond. Mm. It it is a test of structures of government as well as of actual governments, I think, and something that we're going to reflect on as the weeks and months go by. Well, with that, my great thanks to Alex Thomas, Joe Marshall and Dan Baltz. And thank you all for listening too. Inside Briefing will be back next week and we'll have some new IFG live events for you too. Do catch up with some brilliant ones from this week with Jill Rutter's chat about the government communications strategy. And she brought along Alistair Campbell, Craig Oliver, and Camilla Tomini, an absolute must listen. 
You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss one. And you can stream us on Spotify and Acast too. You can find all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. That's it. Somehow another bank holiday weekend has snuck up on us again with great weather. Enjoy being outside. <laughs>